0: Happy New Year, everyone! It's 5 p.m. on Thursday, January 13th, and you are at the bar. I'm Jennifer Braceres with Independent Women's Law Center,
1: and I'm mean, going to step in with uh, with IWF as well. I'm sorry I was running around; that's why we are late, I'm trying to to find a place to broadcast this from. So, uh, if it seems a little discombobulated, that's why. Um, but. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about race-based medicine. So, uh, particularly the decisions by some states to actually prioritize COVID treatment by race, which I don't think has gotten nearly the amount of coverage that it really uh, that it needs. So, um, yeah, it's it's happening a lot
0: more than people realize. Um, Last year in April, the state of Vermont made anyone over the age of sixteen eligible for the vaccine. So this is when you know, vaccines were new and and supposedly, you know, we were prioritizing the elderly. Um, but they made it available to anyone over the age of 16 so long as they weren't white. Um, white people had to be, you know, senior citizens, 50 or older, or whatever the age was to get it. Um, and then in October, the state of Vermont did the same thing with their booster eligibility. They made that contingent Um, at least in part, on the basis of race as well. Same with New Hampshire. Um, New York is uh, basically prioritizing racial minorities for COVID-19 therapeutics. Um, And that is also happening in Utah, as well as in Minnesota, where health officials have devised sort of a complex, quote-unquote, ethical framework that prioritizes Black 18-year-olds over white sixty four year olds. So
1: joining uh and joining us at the bar uh, to discuss both the the prudence and and the actual sort of shocking nature of some of these prioritizations um as well as the legality and and any challenges that might be mounted uh to this this kind of race-based medicine we have two amazing guests for you today um aaron sabarium is an editor over at the washington free beacon he graduated from yale university where he was the opinion editor of the daily of the yale daily news um and and he's also worked for the American Interest in the past, but he's been doing some amazing reporting um, on this issue, especially over the last several months. And Wen Fa is an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation, an organization that defends individual liberty from government overreach. Um, Wen's practice has been focused on equality before the law and free speech. Um, So he is the ideal person to start asking about how this can possibly be legal um, and what we're going to do about it and how we're going to challenge this. So uh, these outrageous, outrageous race-based preferences in the law. So uh, welcome, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us at the bar.
2: Th- thank you for having me. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you
0: for being here. Um, Aaron, let's start with you, because as you said, you've done a bit of reporting on this. Could you tell us a little bit more about the states that are implementing these policies and also give us um, sort of the context or the background as to why they're doing this?
2: Sure. Uh, there are three that I know of. Um, New York... Has, made, has basically listed being non-white as a risk factor that automatically qualifies one for monoclonal antibodies. Um, so basically just anyone who's not white automatically gets, um, is eligible. Um, they don't really have a complicated weighting scheme. It's just, if you have any risk factor, you're eligible. And that's one of them. Uh, in Utah, they have a complicated COVID-19 score that gives you two points for being non-white or being uh, Latinx ethnicity. Uh, Two points is the same amount that they give to being severely immunocompromised or to having obesity or to being a diabetic um, and more than they give to having congestive heart failure. Um, And in Minnesota uh, until just yesterday, Uh, if you were BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, or a person of color, you got two extra points in their weighting scheme, um, which meant that in principle, a healthy uh, 18-year-old Asian woman, which is the demographic that's probably the least likely to die of COVID in the United States, less likely than white people to die, um, that 18-year-old Asian woman would have had priority over a 64-year-old white man with hypertension. Now, Minnesota actually... Uh, just yesterday announced in the wake of some controversy, we're getting rid of that part. No, we're not taking race into account anymore, uh, which is good. But the, the the background for this is that uh, it is true that certain racial groups tend to have worse COVID outcomes. That is probably in large part because those racial groups are just more likely to have the comorbidities associated with bad COVID outcomes Technically, when you control for the comorbidities and socioeconomic status and geography and all these other things, you can, I think, still find that race has maybe some independent risk associated, but it's a lot smaller once you control for all that stuff. And even if you believed that it ought to play into the waiting scheme somehow, there's just no evidence or data that it... Uh, race alone puts you at more risk than hypertension or than, uh, you know, being 40 years older than someone else. I mean, it's just, these things are orders of magnitude more important. Um, right. And so I would the, say-
0: The things you're talking about, um, the New York policy, um, the Utah policy, the the Minnesota policy mm-hmm. was repealed. Those are for the therapeutics, right? And Correct. As I mentioned in the intro, there are some states that also did it with the vaccines blatantly. Yes. Um, but in fact, there were many more states that did it in a facially neutral way, but with the same intent. So for example, um, you know, there was a lot of push, instead of to just distribute vaccines on the basis of age as they did in the UK, there was a big push in Massachusetts to give it first to first responders. And everybody sort of knew that the reason we were giving it to first responders wasn't really because they were more at risk of COVID, but because police departments and fire departments are much more diverse than the geriatric population. And so that was a way to quote unquote, make vaccine distribution more equitable in a facially neutral way
2: and i would i would add that the cdc almost did that the cdc when it was drafting up its allocation guidelines that it was going to recommend all the states follow um in november december 2020 they explicitly said um because essential workers are disproportionately minority whereas the elderly are disproportionately white uh Giving more weight to essential workers would improve racial equity, so they actually proposed uh, not just doing it by age. Even though their own models, and they said this explicitly, even though their own models said that if we do it by age, that will save the most lives,
1: right. but
2: it won't be it won't be equitable. So let's do this other thing that we ourselves foresee will kill more people. That was the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, a United States federal agency.
0: Correct.
2: Yeah. I, can I just make one extra point, which is, I, you know, I, I think that there, you know, there is sort of a, this good faith argument of, well, like if we did all the proper statistical analysis and we still found race had some independent risk, maybe we should take it into account somehow. Maybe that's a valid argument, but, but that's clearly not what actually is motivating them because poverty also has a big effect on risk. And that's nowhere in the guidelines. Geography does. That's nowhere in the guidelines. And in New York and Minnesota, sex is nowhere in the guidelines, even though men are 50 to 100% more likely to die of COVID than women. So if it was only about risk and you really wanted to play this game, fine, you could maybe justify bringing race into it, but you would also have to bring in all these other things that are presumably less polarizing. But they don't bring those in, they only bring in the most polarizing possible thing and i mean i think we all know why it's because they're not really trying to mitigate risk they're trying to kind of instantiate this you know inverted oppression hierarchy um into law and policy and that's really what's going on and we all know it
1: yeah i mean uh, it's 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 really I, I guess one of my questions has been why there hasn't been more of a backlash um, around this because it's so clear that it is. I mean, I, I take your point that there, there are diseases that are, you know, that, that interact um, differently in the body based on race, a few of them, right? I think of like sickle cell or something like Look. that, um, that where yeah, race whatever. really is a primary factor. It seems very, very clear that that's not what is happening here. Uh, but I want, I want to bring in um, when, you know, often we hear like racial preferences, even given that everything that Aaron has said, right? Um, it'd be really difficult to justify with such a high bar. I mean, we, we really generally put a very, very high bar on literal, ra- literal racial preferences in the law. Like you really have to clear a lot of constitutional barriers in order to put racial preferences in the law. Um, but we hear this defended oftentimes um, on the basis that it was just one factor among many, which really sounds a lot like um, like college admissions debates and affirmative action debates, right? But one, one factor among many in in the decision as to who gets a vaccine or who gets a treatment. Um, but I, I want to pull up this graphic. Um, you know, according to Aaron's reporting, Minnesota's plan literally reads FDA's acknowledgement, um, you know, means that race and ethnicity alone, apart from other underlying health conditions, may be considered. How is this even just, you know, when, how is this even going to, like, what is the argument that this is remotely constitutional? Because it seems like a completely blatant racial preference in the law.
3: I don't think there is an argument that this is even remotely constitutional, and as I think as you pointed out, racial preferences have to clear a very high bar, you have to satisfy what people in the legal world call strict scrutiny. That means it has to, it's presumptively unconstitutional, it has to, uh, the government has to prove a compelling interest, and it has to prove that its race-based actions are narrowly tailored towards furthering that compelling interest, which is usually remedying past discrimination. So it doesn't really matter um, if race is uh, the only factor or one of many factors. Um, if we're talking about racial discrimination, it's presumptu- presumptively unconstitutional. And I believe these programs are unconstitutional in the states that Aaron mentioned, in states like Utah and states like New York. And that's because they don't take account into account anything that's individualized uh, about the person. They don't, they don't take into account Uh, solely the person's uh, health conditions, age, things like that. Instead, what you get is a blanket score based on that person's race. And we've seen that come up in the college admissions context. In the University of Michigan, for example, uh, the the undergraduate uh, institution at the University of Michigan gave everyone who was a minority a 20-point boost um, in admissions. Now, that was just one of many factors. But the court said you can't look at people crudely Uh, as members of their racial group. We're all individuals. We all have our individual uh, abilities, achievements, aspirations, and the government should treat us as individuals, not as members of broad uh, racial groups.
0: Yeah, so what do you, as a constitutional lawyer, what do you make of sort of the facially neutral policies that said, um, we're going to give this to cops and firefighters before 86-year-old granny. Um, you know, we all know why they were doing it. How, what do you, do you think that if policies like that were challenged, they would pass constitutional muster? I know that's a closer call.
3: It is a closer call, but I think if you can make a showing of discriminatory intent, uh, that's exactly the type of case a case that we're litigating here in the admissions context at pacific legal foundation for example we're challenging uh thomas jefferson's uh revamped admissions policy where you see um uh you see uh board members saying that there are too many asians uh at at tj in virginia and they've completely revamped the admissions policy just to decrease the number of Asians and to increase the number of students uh, that might be of other races. The Supreme Court has said very clearly, if you have a law that is motivated, that is driven by a discriminatory purpose and produces a discriminatory effect, that is just as much racial discrimination as if you have a law that facially discriminates on the basis of race. So I think those laws that you mentioned, Jennifer, would also be uh, very much in constitutional doubt.
2: Can, Can I just point out an irony here, which is, I mean, I'm someone who strongly believes that intent does and should matter and disparate impact alone uh, is not a good reason to invalidate a facially race neutral policy, but it's worth noting that there have been times where the Supreme Court basically has said, oh well, you know, intent doesn't matter like in in Griggs uh, versus Duke Power Company, you know it was it was. I think most people would probably think that the reason that they adopted this kind of facially neutral um, IQ test for employers, given the timing and and whatever, probably was in order to racially discriminate, you know, in the 70s. But the court said actually in its decision, well, this isn't just, we're not saying that we are inferring their intent and striking the policy down on that basis. They were saying it's just because it has disparate impact and the you know power company hasn't shown that there's a good enough reason to sort of require this policy with a disparate impact. So well, really, I mean, I just ironically that was a
0: statutory case, right? If I recall,
2: I think um, yeah, but but
0: and I and it, I do think you know so in in I used to practice employment discrimination and, and civil rights law, and I I did teach some classes on it. And yeah. the yeah. thing about disparate impact <laughs> yeah. is that it can be evidence of discrimination, right? So a policy that, you know, impacts um, black citizens much more severely than white citizens, um, the fact of that impact can be taken into account when you're weighing whether or not this was racially motivated. Um, In and of itself, it's it's hardly ever dispositive, even in the statutory context. In the constitutional context, (laughs) it can't be, that impact alone can't be dispositive. Right under Washington versus Davis, you know, you need a showing of intent. Um, but under the statutory context, you know, if you're suing a private employer or a company for discrimination, uh, you know, a disparate impact, a severe disparate impact can, can really lead a jury to infer that there's been discrimination. But there usually has to be a little more. Right. Well, it's not that it's never relevant. It's just that it's not dispositive for the most right. part.
1: Erin, you pointed out that this this isn't limited um, necessarily just to these COVID treatments, and and you know I think the politics around, especially those early cases around the vaccine, because there are politics involved, um, the outcry didn't really happen because a lot of the people who would have you know, gotten ahead and, and raised an outcry about the vaccine or anti-vaccine <laughs> um, about these discriminations. So there was like a weird little political piece yeah. to this. But with the treatments, I, I think that little p- weird political whatever Tetris won't happen and there might be more mm-hmm. anger about it. But you point out this is actually quite much broader than anything specifically related to COVID, right? So you've tied in, um, you know, a lot of of the reality of where medical associations and hospitals are going on wokeism more generally and anti quote unquote, anti-racism more generally. And you've pointed out that there is no logical stopping point to this in terms of triage policies. Could you like outline that a little bit for us?
2: Yeah. Well, well, so I think that, the, well, there's sort of two separate questions. There's there's how much further could this go with triage, and then how much further could this go with, say, affirmative action in medical programs, like, say, medical school admissions? I mean, with triage, you know, I would assume that, in theory, like, you know, the political outcry after a certain point will prevent the racial preferences from being maybe too extreme, but as you said there has not been as much maybe pushback as you'd expect and even with these therapeutics where the politics you know don't don't interfere with the pushback quite as much i mean it's great to see like tucker and other people talk about this but i have not seen tom cotton tweeted something that was nice but like i don't really see many republicans like making this a huge issue despite the fact that they quite literally could say with only a shred of exaggeration that this is the woke state killing white people to advance social justice. I mean, it's the perfect talking point, but they don't go for it. Uh, So, you know, I worry that we're going to need there to really be some like pretty vicious backlash or else I just think this stuff is going to keep happening. Um, But you know, the other thing is, look, when it comes to standards of care, right. What treatments you're eligible is only part of the story. The other part of the story is, does the doctor taking care of you know what they're doing? And now you have these medical accreditation bodies that are effectively requiring schools to embrace more and more affirmative action, more and more diversity, equity, and inclusion reforms. And where that's going, if you talk to any doctor, you know, get them off the record privately, they will tell you, you know, medical students are not as qualified today as they were 25 years ago. And that's in part because we have these crazy racial preferences. And so the standards, not, it's not just that some people get admitted who maybe aren't as qualified, but it's that to get those people through med school, the standards for everyone get lowered. And so it really affects the whole medical system. Um, so yeah, you know, I think Inez and I spoke a few weeks ago about the worry that incompetence would cause planes to fall out of the sky. Well, you know, even if that doesn't happen, uh, you might get doctors who just, like, aren't quite as competent. They misdiagnose, you know, a medical error, and then they give you treatment that you don't need, and that could hurt your health or even kill you. I mean, this is a really a life and death matter. It's not good.
0: It's not as directly life and death, though, as the distribution of, of therapeutic medications themselves. No, I mean, it's if not. a person who comes into the hospital and needs treatment and isn't given that treatment on the basis of race, that is, a, you know, something that's directly threatening to somebody's health. Without, you know, without any sort of speculation or, you know. Uh-huh. whatever a leap of imagination that's it, it's direct. And so I wonder, um when if you know of any cases of people who might be challenging this or um, you know, would would in order to challenge this legally in the courts, would you have to be somebody who was denied treatment in order to to have standing or what what's your view on that?
3: Well, I think my view of it is that you would have to show. That uh, this is that the, these sorts of guidelines are likely to discriminate against you, because you would be seeking, I think, what in law um, uh, is called prospective injunctive relief. You're seeking to enjoin the state officials who are tasked with enforcing this law from enforcing these laws in the future, because these laws violate uh, the Constitution. Whether it would be Uh, likely the Equal protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. So, you know, I I do think, uh, as as I think uh, you mentioned earlier, these laws are very uh, novel. I mean, coronavirus itself is novel, but there's been this recent push of...
0: Remember when we used to call it the novel coronavirus? Exactly, exactly.
3: (laughs) Uh, But there's definitely been also a recent push of uh, instilling equity. Over equality. And I think this is a dangerous push. I think that's why you're seeing things like uh, uh, COVID treatment uh, on a way that discriminates on the basis of race. You're seeing farm loan forgiveness given solely on the basis of race. You're also seeing uh, COVID relief efforts directed towards people only, towards businesses only uh, that are minority owned. Uh, You know, we've challenged the farm loan forgiveness program. We got a uh, injunction on that program. We challenged the states, Colorado's race-based COVID relief program, got an injunction there. And, you know, I think if these programs continue to go forward, I hope the states like Utah and New York follow in Minnesota's footsteps. But I think if these uh, states go forward, I think you are going to start seeing some of these challenges uh, fairly soon.
0: I I want to talk about the word equity that you mentioned, because You see a lot of politicians, you know, especially when the vaccine was first being rolled out and they would say things like we want to make sure the vaccines are distributed equitably. Um, And I think most people think most the average person watching the news when they hear a politician say that they think that means they want the vaccines distributed fairly. They think, you know, equity and equitable mean fair. equity doesn't mean fair, does it? I mean, when you hear the term equity, it really means on the basis of race. Am I right?
3: Right. So I think the way that the politicians use that term, they mean proportional representation among different racial groups, which I think is kind of arbitrary for multiple reasons. One is that these racial groups are largely government-drawn. They're very arbitrary. Uh, Asians, for example, include people from dozens of different countries uh, and I, I believe something like 60% of the world's population uh, are considered Asian. Um, so these are arbitrary racial groups. You also see this sort of obsession with proportional representation. And what that really shows, I, I think what where that really fails is that it doesn't really take into account individual achievement, differences in individual aspirations and individual goals. Um, Aaron talked a little bit earlier about uh, merit, And that's I think that's a very important issue uh, that might seem tangential, but it's actually very related to this issue of equity, uh, because even in cases where it's not a life and death situation, I think all Americans um, should strive for a system in which the best candidates are given certain uh, jobs or, or careers or, or entitlements, the best deserving candidates. And I think that's something that serves people regardless of race regardless of, you know, what color your kids are or, you know, where they go to school, I think parents should be wanting them to get into top schools the right way because they have performed well on tests, because they have done well in school, because they have studied hard, because they have worked hard and not on the basis of their membership in a racial classification. And I think that's what this debate is all about.
2: Yeah. You know, I would just add that the term equity, I think, is is slippery precisely because it, it now has taken on two different meanings and people use the term to mean two different things. For example, in Biden's executive order on equity in the federal government, he issued this as soon as he took office, they actually define equity to mean something more like old-fashioned fairness, where they, they say equal opportunity. That's the language. They don't say equal outcomes. But of course, there's this whole other kind of NGO-funded progressive activist class that is consciously using the term equity and differentiating it from equality or equality of opportunity and saying, no, equity is, you know, either a quality of outcome or something very close to it. And what that means is that policymakers can kind of use the term equity and say, oh, no, we're just invoking old-fashioned classical American values about fairness and equal opportunity. But of course because of the connotations it's taken on, they're giving kind of a wink and a nod to the progressive activist class. And that makes it very easy for people to kind of switch between different meanings of the term on the fly and kind of defend the really insane race conscious policies while then doing a kind of mutton Bailey and retreating to the, Oh no, we were just defending equality of opportunity. So, you know, people can challenge you know, that definition of equity, but I think it's, it's meaningless because we all know that they're using that word precisely because I think it has multiple signifiers and, and that's tactically very useful.
1: Um, you know, the, the progressive activist class that you're talking about has so much power. Um, and a lot of your reporting has been about this in institutions and oftentimes private institutions, right. So like accreditation bodies, Mm -hmm. medical associations, right. Um, you know, hospital compliance, uh, you know, offices, right? Um, and and when when you were talking about, so I really would like to hear from both of you on this, from from the legal and from the the sort of political or reported angle. Um, how do we prevent? So if if indeed these things are obviously unconstitutional, and and let's say we get we we find the right plaintiff and we get a series of of good decisions on the books that say, you know, you the state cannot discriminate on the basis of race, um, and neither can a private company, right? So um, if we have a series of good decisions like that, how do we prevent something like what has happened with the First Amendment in universities, right, where you have good precedent laid down, for example, on the unconstitutionality of public universities having, quote, unquote, free speech zones, right? Right. And and yet universities just keep rewriting their policies and and they're just willing to be sued every several years by, you know, the one student who hooks up with FIRE or hooks up with PLF um, and and actually has the the resources and the gumption to take that lawsuit. And then, you know, the the university ends up settling, right? Um, There's this whole dynamic developing where, in fact, the the court decisions that say you can't do this are, are just kind of being ignored. Um, because of the strength and the power of this, what what Aaron labeled the progressive activist class, which I think is a pretty good description within institutions to the point where they would, they are willing to risk, um, you know, being sued and losing repeatedly. So how do we enforce, if indeed we have good decisions um, on the books about how this is wildly unconstitutional, how do we make sure that those decisions are actually operative and enforceable?
3: So so I think this is a little bit ironic coming from me because I am a litigator, but I don't think it's possible to sort of uh, instill the change that we want to see solely in terms of lawsuits and setting precedent. And I think that's a huge part of it, but I also think it's a battle of ideas. We have to show people, uh, not just lawyers, not just judges, but people kind of who read uh, the Boston Herald, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, people who watch TV, who listen to radio. We have to show them why these ideas matter, why equity, the principle of equity is so pernicious when it leads to unequal treatment on the basis of race. And I think it's it's that might uh, be something that takes um, a, a little bit longer. That might be something that... Uh, uh, effects change a little bit slower, but I think it's a very important battle that we have to wage. And I think that's that's something that we're trying to do here at Pacific Legal Foundation, not just when in the course of law, but also in the course of public opinion.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say sunlight is a powerful disinfectant. So, you know, all of SQL, it's, it's better when people write stories about this and shine a light on this um, than when they don't. I gotta tell you, I, I'm I I do worry that while sunlight is the maybe a good disinfectant, I'm not sure it's the best one. Um, I think that uh, these bureaucracies are really sticky, um, and you know, private universities, for example, face a kind of asymmetric legal landscape in which they are liable under civil rights laws for not creating a safe and equitable space for say women or you know other protected classes um but they're not liable really for uh shutting down people's free speech rights uh and you know until and and there are there's no free speech bureaucracy uh at yale or for that matter at public educations. um, Right. I mean, I just should jump
0: in for a second. I think that that the universities in particular use the law and use court decisions to justify what they were going to do anyway. So when they get, when they have a, a regulation from the department of education, for example, with which they agree, then they say, well, we have to do this. We need to develop this bureaucracy and we need to crack down on X, Y, and Z because the Department of Ed said so. And then when the department issues a different regulation that they don't like, well, then it's a whole different story. Then they're all... Yeah, but I... Can't implement it. No, I,
2: I agree with that. Although I think, you know, part of why they can resist when they, when there's a regulation they don't like is because they know that there's this entrenched bureaucratic infrastructure that's still, even within the government, that's still probably sympathetic to them and going to side with them, um, especially in the form of the civil rights bureaucracy. And, you know, look, like, all these compliance offices, I mean, they did not, they didn't exist before there was something for them to comply with. Then, of course, once they get entrenched, they kind of take on their own logic, and even if they went away, yeah, like, you know, not that we're going to do this, but, like, you know, if Title IX went away tomorrow, it's not like the Title IX offices would all just go away. But, you know, I I do think that part of the issue here is for a good long while, um, there really has not been many credible state threats of state action against universities for violating free speech, but there have been relatively more credible threats, you know, for the social justice stuff. And so, yes, I agree. There's like a kind of a lot of people at universities want to do this anyway, because they're ideologues. But. Um, but that's in part because of this prior legal asymmetry and i don't really know how you fix this but like clearly there needs to be some bureaucratic mechanism that actually is going to punish schools or other private institutions for behaving in this kind of way or you have to just get rid of the bureaucratic mechanism that's currently punishing, you know, punishing them if they're not super woke. But I don't really think we're going to do that. So I, but when I you're, think- the
0: problem is when you're talking about medicine, right, you can you can bring a lawsuit against sort of s- state mandates that that doctors, you know, prescribe or, or treat on the basis of race. Um, and and that might stop the mandate. For them to do so. But as long as they're being educated uh, by woke medical schools that they should treat people differently yeah. on the basis of race, um, they might not be mandated to do it, but, but they may nevertheless go ahead and do it. And so, how do you stop that kind of cultural rot uh in what's supposed to be, you know, an institution based on science and fact, right? Medical schools how do we um how do we prevent you know the woke takeover of science
2: i mean one one proposal would be to essentially argue that a lot of this woke stuff actually violates the civil rights act rightly understood and to kind of use the the bureaucracy against itself i, I mean i think that's the most promising tactic but i'm just not convinced that you can i think i think a lot of these people are beyond persuasion and it's silly i mean yeah i'm not arguing for like you know purges or anything crazy like that but but like you have to admit no no but like but like i think you just have to recognize that like these entrenched bureaucracies like have a set of values and like it's not going to go away you're not going to use the marketplace of ideas to rationally persuade people out of wokeism that just doesn't work and doesn't happen. And so, you know, I I tend to think like, well, uh, if they start getting sued, uh, for civil rights violations for being, I don't know, like anti-white or for discriminating, you know, you say affirmative action discrimination and conservative courts start, you know, upholding those challenges, uh, that, seems like it could move the ball a bit um, again, you know none of this is easy but I think that yeah. that is probably the most plausible solution. My main point is just I,
0: I just worry about how do we how do we yeah. uh, convince young impressionable medical students and young doctors young people who frankly aren't particularly political right you know yeah. they're science yeah. people that's why they went into medicine. Um, lots of them aren't necessarily on the lookout for, for, you know, woke indoctrination. They're just, they just want to be doctors. And, you know, if they're told that this is how you have to practice that, I I don't know. I mean, how do we equip them with the tools to kind of fight back something that, you know, they went into a field, they didn't have to fight politically, right? That's, that's a choice they made. I don't know how we empower them.
1: Um, well, if I can jump in here, I this is why I actually, in addition to lawsuits, because Aaron, I guess in the university context, I, I've seen it. I've seen winning in court not actually work uh,
0: sure. in any yeah.
1: meaningful way. So many times, uh, I totally agree with when I think that it's really important. The litigation piece of this is really important. And it's really important to lay down um, that precedent, but the courts, the courts can't govern, right? Um, and and so I, I really think this is this is where one possibility is uh, for state legislatures to start looking at things, for example, like riders on appropriation, um, just simply because that creates an actual immediate consequence in a way that the threat of lawsuits or settlements do, do not. Um, and and same thing. I don't know how it would work in this context. And maybe Wen can think think out loud for us here and, and um, lay it out if if it's possible at all. Um, but private rights of action that actually allow citizens to enforce um, enforce uh, some of these these um, precedents, as opposed to waiting for like. Um, for yeah. these uh, issues, to I, I just I'm trying to spitball ways here to make Im- immediate consequences right. Like yeah. you do this, you lose money in your next appropriation. No, I think
2: I think that's the right impulse. Yes, I I'm sympathetic to all of that.
3: And we certainly have uh, proposed legislation uh, in different states, and we've seen a lot of uh, proposed legislation in the liberty uh, movement generally uh, about. You know things like uh what uh i guess what teachers teach in k through 12 classrooms Now i think some of those bills uh to put it frankly are are better than others and how they approach the issue Uh, but i think proposed legislation testimony that is a big piece of the puzzle Um, i think at the end of the day the changing of hearts and minds on the ground and i think that's something that's especially pernicious, it's not really talked about a lot, but that's, this is something that I find especially pernicious about this new, uh, I would say, woke movement, and that a lot of them don't really believe in uh, truth. They don't believe in reason. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I do think we need to have that discussion about what is the right answer in these debates that we're having. Uh, and I think, you know, I think with the, uh, with people putting out op-eds, with people putting out uh, podcasts, things of that sort. I think we are on the right side of history. We are uh, advancing the side of justice, and I think ultimately our ideal, our ideas, and our principles will prevail.
2: Yeah, the other the other thing I would just say is that uh, it's really quite shocking to see Biden's approval plummet so much, and I'm sure that's largely because of COVID and inflation you know, and not directly the culture war stuff. But I don't think the culture war stuff helps. And you saw his approval now is underwater with Hispanics. They're like the, lead, you know, like, like the, even the sort of multiracial coalition that's supposed to give kind of a mandate to wokeness seems to be turning on it, or at least certain parts of that coalition are now swinging way to the right. So, I mean, the other thing that might help us as kind of a deus ex machina or deus ex demographica i don't know is is just as america's diverse immigrant population realizes that its interests are simply not aligned with this kind of insane equity agenda that may create some long-term pressures that force um some moderation on this stuff i don't know if that will happen Uh, you know hard to predict, but that is another thing that I think gives me some optimism.
3: That, that's a great point. I really want to jump on that real quick uh, because, you know, here at Pacific Legal, we care and litigate uh, about equality before the law, but we don't say just equality. We say equality and opportunity. And I think that's goes directly to the point Aaron just raised, because when you talk about something like school choice, who does that disproportionately help? Low income, minority students. When you talk about occupational licensing reform, that helps newer businesses, which are disproportionately likely to be uh, minority businesses. Now, Those things are not race-based, but when you talk about giving everybody opportunity to succeed in America, I think that's exactly what our proposals lead to and what our proposals entail.
1: Well, you know, we're we're always hearing about how democracy dies in in, in darkness here, but, um, but what's actually dying in the darkness right now is meritocracy, and uh, you know, meritocracy has has really helped out, uh, especially like first generation immigrant groups in, in the United States. And I know that's like a large and complicated sort of um, topic, but but I totally agree with you, and I, I think that there there will be some kind of backlash against. Uh, this from people generally the anti meritocratic measures like this um, from people who moved here for opportunity and then suddenly get slapped in the face for example with the, the standards changing at TJ right or um, but but how, how does the the legal piece when um, fit in because right now you know the only uh, thing that has survived right strict scrutiny in terms of racial preferences has been. Preferences, soft preferences, um, in college admissions. And and as we know, there's a there's a time clock running out um, on on the ability. When is that twenty five years, years run out? <laughs> yeah, I actually don't know. It's but it's coming up, right? It's, it's gotta, gotta be,
0: be soon. It's has the
1: next like five or eight years when do you know? Twenty
3: twenty eight.
1: 2028. Okay. We uh, so just have six more years on that clock. I mean, the court composition has changed enormously. We don't know what it's going to look like in six years, but do you see the court putting forward um, a, a more firm line on any kind of racial preference? Because it seems to me that so much of the arguments around this could, could be applied sort of Equally in the university context, and, and there's definitely a lot of cross pollination between allowing racial preferences in this one, you know, sort of limited way um, and allowing those to continue that encourages more and more institutions to perhaps try out racial preferences under, under the banner of wokeness.
3: Absolutely, I do see some firm lines there, and I see them in uh, three different areas. The first, uh, as you mentioned, I think the uh, sort of soft racial preferences uh, in higher education. We, see, we have two petitions uh, that our friends at the Students for Fair Admissions filed uh, that's being considered by the Supreme Court right now and in, in involving programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. And we see the pernicious effect that racial preferences have at those places. Because when you look at college guidebooks, they literally tell you that if you're applying to Harvard and you're an Asian Asian student, don't say you want to be a doctor or don't, want, don't say you want to major in math or sciences because you'll look too much like typical Asian. And that just goes squarely against this notion that we believe you should have, that you should be able to pursue the career of your dreams regardless of your race. Uh, I also see that coming up in the sort of racially, facially neutral, but uh, laws that are being done with discriminatory intent. And we have several lawsuits going on. At Pacific Legal Foundation challenging those programs, not just at TJ, but also at these Bronx, uh, sorry, New York City specialized schools like Bronx Science, Stuyvesant, things like that, where Mayor de Blasio said it was a monumental injustice that there were so many Asian American students at those schools. Uh, and the third area, one that often gets overlooked, is in this area of public contracting, where three years, uh, sorry, not three years, th- three decades ago, the Supreme Court held that minority business set-asides and contracting were presumptively unconstitutional and one by the city of Richmond, violated the constitution. But since that time, we've seen uh, court of appeals after court of appeals really endorse these set-aside programs uh, based on uh, shoddy disparity studies that are done with the end of uh, enacting racial racial set-asides for minority-owned businesses in mind. So those programs lead to a lot of fraud um, they lead to people who, um, uh, you know, uh, use minority contractors just to meet a goal. They don't lead to equality and opportunity. And I think in all three of those areas, we're going to see substantial reform by the Supreme Court in the next five years.
0: But let me just ask you this. In those areas, um, you know, even if we didn't see reform from the courts in those areas, the particular area we're talking about, medical care, you um, it's so extreme that you could imagine, uh, you know, a state of play where the court upholds, for example, affirmative action um, in, you know, at Harvard University, but says, "Wait a minute, New York State cannot mandate medical care be given out on the basis of race." I mean, it's just—it's such an extreme position. No matter where you stand on on preferences and admissions, that you know, I wonder, are we going to see those cases? Are people going to bring those cases? Because it seems to me maybe harder to find a plaintiff. Um, Because frankly, most of us who find this so appalling, you know, I think we don't necessarily see ourselves as people who are going to need to go to the hospital for this treatment, right? We all, everybody, everybody wants to be optimistic about COVID and about their health care. Nobody sees themselves as potentially being denied medical treatment. Whereas it's very easy for people to see their children being denied, you know, admission to a college, right? And so I think I feel like I wonder how hard it'll be to find a plaintiff for this case, even though this case is so much more egregious.
3: Well, you know, I I think we will see those cases. You know, I think there are people who are upset, people who, you know, for example, have had COVID or have medical conditions and they want, they do not want to, when they go to a hospital or they want, when when they want to get a treatment, they do not want to be discriminated
0: on the basis of race. So I think, you know. No, nobody does. I just wonder who's going to sue about it. And I hope somebody does, frankly. Yeah. And, you know,
3: if any of your listeners are listening and, and this, is some, this is something that oh affects them. I definitely encourage them to, to call me. And I think another piece of this is, is Aaron's excellent reporting on this issue. You know, the more people that we have talking about these issues, I think the more people are going to be able to make those connections and to know that there is help available for, for them, uh, that they have legal recourse and that, you know, this is something that does violate their constitutional rights.
1: Aaron, you want you want to address that question um, before we wrap up? You want a last word on any of this on, on your reporting?
2: Um, I mean, I would just say uh, I do think that racial preferences in medicine are more overtly offensive to people's moral intuitions than in higher education, and that should hopefully make it easier to push back on them i also don't think that five years ago anyone would have believed he said this is where we'd be in five years and the, the speed with which this stuff has, has gone well beyond you know the campus admissions office is frightening you know and without just getting into the weeds all i'll say is I'm working on a lot of reported projects right now. This stuff is not just happening in medicine. just happening in colleges, It is happening in every major institution. Um, and it's being normalized. And as it's normalized, you know, even if it's technically illegal, you know, if people just think, well, this is what's normal, you know, we just do this because of equity, you know, I think you will have a harder time getting people to sue um, over this stuff, And indeed, like there were a lot of things that were done in the summer of 2020, um, say businesses just announcing overt racial hiring quotas, which just like obviously unconstitutional, but just no one really said anything. Um, so you know, I think that there is room to push back, but uh, yeah, it's it's it, people need to realize how bad it's gotten, and and we're already at the point where it's. It's, it's, I think, harder to push back than it should be precisely because so many people implicitly accept the legitimacy of this stuff.
1: Well, I think that's definitely true. And I think you're also completely right about how institutions create an institutional culture where this is just de rigueur and nobody bats an eye at it and it will over time it'll become more and more difficult to find those outraged plaintiffs and and to actually push back against this so in that sense i think time is of the essence um but but when aaron thank you so much for joining at the bar um where where can people find more of your work people can I'm, find
3: more of our work at pacificlegal.org
2: uh i'm on twitter aaron sabera um or you can just check out my author page at the Free Beacon.
1: And At the Bar uh, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. Um, it's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. You can listen to it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere you get your, your podcasts. Thank you. Uh, thanks to our guests and, and thanks to uh, everyone out there for, for joining us on this really important discussion about racial preferences uh, and disc- racial discrimination in the distributed distribution um, of life-saving medicine, because I, I really think this this one is a, a big flashing red light that we're, we're headed in a very dangerous direction.
0: Definitely. And we hope you'll join us again in two weeks for our 20th virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Until then, cheers.
2: Have a good one.